Now on News Talk, we hand over the national airwaves to a group of transition year students to discuss what really matters to them in TY Teen Talk. This transition year media week programme is funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee and has been devised by Learning Waves. Hi, I'm Shannon. I'm on a TY programme for Media Week here in News Talk. Thanks to News Talk and Learning Waves for facilitating this. I will be joined by my eight colleagues and we will be talking about issues we think are important. Firstly, I am joined by Jane and Jello who will be talking about the positive and negative impacts of social media. So welcome. Why would you like to talk about this subject? Thanks for having us. Um, it's unfair that the social media is always spoken about negatively. There's a lot of stigma around it that social media is a negative thing, but to me personally, I find that it's quite positive. Right, thanks. Uh, Jello, so what are your views on social media? My views of social negative is it's really it's yeah. really negative uh, for many reasons, but to name a few, there's cyberbullying, there's hatred of body image, pressure of likes, and knowing that your dad is always saved somewhere. Uh, Jello, you mentioned cyberbullying. What are your views on cyberbullying? Cyberbullying happens a lot because back then it would be like a, a playground kind of bullying, you know. Uh, multiple kids or one kid's picking on one kid every day, every, like constant, uh, constant occurrence. But nowadays, when you're getting bullied, it can follow you home with social media. I mean, I have statistics here saying that 9% of 15-year-olds have had one episode of cyberbullying and though those statistics are low, some victims may not feel like they are able to or would like to open up about their experiences with cyberbullying. And I personally, I feel like it's just not talked about enough and we're uneducated, very uneducated about it. Jane, what's your response to that? Yeah, like I totally agree with that. Cyberbullying is definitely a negative and it's not right and it shouldn't happen. But at the same time, it's unfair to teens that are are educated about the media and use social media correctly and don't troll and don't bully are painted with the same brush and the whole of the media is painted with this brush over this bad thing but it's you have to look at the positives as well like um we should we should be educated and there should be education facilities like more going into skills and all because this is the future the media is the future and um it's just unfair cyberbullying is brought up a lot because it is an occurrence but there is um there was research done saying that actually it's three times more common playground regular playground bullying than uh, cyberbullying. Now it does it it does start with the play with the playground bullying and skills or you know outside friends arguments happen, but it is followed home and it is a bad thing. But bullying's always been there and it's always been an issue and bullying in general should be addressed. And I just feel like cyberbullying is just a a kind of tail off and that's the only bullying we talk about when normal playground bullying is just as bad right thanks uh we heard some of the reasons why jello thinks that it's negative jane what do you think is positive about it well a big one for me a big positive for me would be connecting it's a great way of keeping in touch and up to date with friends and family and people going through similar situations like if you're if you are getting bullied you might find someone online going through the same thing as you are anything really people getting married having babies there's vlogs out there there's so much what social media provides for us and um i do think that there is a, there that is a big positive it's connecting and um just like situations where families move abroad you get to stay in touch 
Um, you don't even need to send texts anymore or ring people because they post a picture and you're already up to date with what they're doing and you don't need to text them every five minutes because they're posting on their Instagram stories, Snapchat stories and it's a, just a great way of staying in touch. Right, so Jello, can you argue that it's not good for communicating with people? It, I can argue. Um, I see communication is is a really big positive but it's just when sometimes cyber stalking can come up in social media when cyber stalking happens like there's predators on social media that come out of nowhere and usually they are easy to find but like when you can't find them what can you really do about it another thing is we always are on social media now like our social skills are dying when you go on a date now it's usually you're on your phone you're not really talking face to face face to face conversations are dying um when we go into interviews your people skills could be dropped because of social media you're like you're so used to like texting and on social media like liking comments it's it's unreal now so jello would you use social media yourself for communication i wouldn't personally do that all the time no yeah like that's a big one as well like um yeah communication is getting a bit low people don't have many people skills but um like that as well some people don't have the opportunity to use their people skills and there was a pro- there was a movie just put onto Netflix there recently called Five Feet Apart and it was about kids with CF and how they have they have to stay apart from each other but kids on the ward were you know becoming friends and the only way they could stay in touch was through their social medias because otherwise they wouldn't be able to see each other or they'd have to sit a far distance away from each other and like that as well just people with illness people in hospitals um, around the country like they can't get in touch with their families their families can't come to visit them um, all the time like some people from down the country have to come up to our ladies and you know their families probably ring them like grannies and granddads who are too ill to come up and visit them and that's how they stay in touch so um, you kind of have to take the good with the bad and that and um, like it is it's a great form of connecting when you look at it like that for people who don't have the opportunity for face to face like as I said families abroad people abroad and finding out things from other countries as well that's another big thing for me is getting information on what's going on around the world we wouldn't have that if it was just if there was no media well sure we can like we do have social media but we can also call people like you know regularly call them we can facetime them now without social media the only thing is it's time consuming and in a, in this generation we're really busy we're always busy we're always doing something and it's it's not like you sit down you send a letter anymore that's the past obviously but um now it's like you just you pick up your phone your your family in canada let's say posted a photo oh they're gone skiing you just find out instantly. You don't even need to ring, check up text. You already know what they're up to. Um, I'm just going to bring up what Jello said about cyber stalking as well. Because um, when carried out safely and securely, communication through social networks can be beneficial. I'm, and I'm not saying that cyber stalking victims are the are to blame here. It just It's a horrible, scary thing and, and uh, it shouldn't happen. But there is the option of going on a private account and... Um, you know, we post put our images publicly, including myself. But at the same time, it's down to being uneducated, and that that makes them themselves who are targeted in the cyber stalking issue easy easy targets.
Right, so the both of brought up body image and I'm sure the listeners are interested to hear what both of have to say about it. So Jello, if we go to you first. Sure. <clears throat> body image is a big thing when it comes to social media because we always see pictures of people with their, let's say, perfect bodies. It affects people because one, it hits their self-esteem. They could feel like, oh, this person per se is perfect they have six packs they have amazing like fatigue and it affects one's self-esteem it, it makes you want to think oh i don't have six packs I, I think i should change myself now because just because this person himself has a six pack while that is all true yeah it does hit the self-esteem areas for some people but at the same time it's all about how you use it and if you use your social media accounts correctly you can choose not to follow these people who may make you feel down about yourself and a lot of the negatives cancel themselves out for example like with the body image and the big one is programs like love island and the influencers online how it's fair on them just because they're pretty men and women who decided to post pictures on their social media accounts that we all feel bad it's not social media's fault that we feel this way and that's an ongoing problem for years like um, in the 90s it was Baywatch and I feel like as well you have to remember when you're talking about body images on the media you have to remember body positivity like there's people out there like Lizzo and Ashley Graham and everyone else who promotes self-love and it's important to remember those people when talking about social media. Right two very opposing views there thanks very much Jane and Jello for joining us today. Yeah, thanks very much Anna. And now I'm talking to Adam and Patrick on the cost of getting on the road for young people can you just tell me why you found this important? Uh, I found it important because um, I live in a area where public transport is um, limited enough, and we like in Kilcock, you need it. You can't. Uh, you need to drive everywhere pretty much, and you need to uh, get like you can't just go hop on a bus like you can in Dublin, and it's. The cost of driving is so unfair on young people because of compensation and I just don't think it's right the way the Irish uh, government has it. I uh, agree with uh, Patrick. You know, I live in Dublin so it's easy to get to places but how he lives in the countryside, it's harder. And uh, even though I live in Dublin and I have transport, it would be nice to get to place to place in a car from like training or to school. Is there anything you think should be done to improve the situation? Lower the price of the insurance. Patrick, do you think it should be taught in schools? I think it should be because, uh, like, it'd be good to have an education on it and people would know more then. Uh, so we took to the streets to ask people their views on the... What's your opinion on the cost of driving for young people? The cost of driving for young people, it's scandalous. Absolutely. You know, they have to be able to get a start in life and... Probably use driving for a job and stuff like that, but they can't afford to get their insurance and what have you, and they could restrict them getting work and what have you. I think it's really expensive, like tax and insurance is too expensive. Um, I think it's definitely expensive for young people to drive. I haven't gotten my full license yet. I'm still doing my lessons, and even the lessons themselves are very expensive. It's very expensive. It's better and more affordable for teenagers my age to use public transport. I'd love to be able to drive, but just, you know, for petrol, it's going up and in town, in the cities. Just to be able to afford a car in general is hard. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like for people our age who are like 18 or maybe older in college, new cars, not even 
not even in the question. It's all bangers and, you know, secondhand cars, insurance as well. That's crazy. I think it's so expensive today. Like, I have a credit union loan out at the minute and I'm still paying it the past two years. And when that's paid off, I'm going to have to get another one out for my insurance for next year. Issue. Uh, that was interesting to see that a lot of them agreed with your uh, views. Yeah, and uh, we went to get some expert opinion. So I'm here today with Connor Falcon, Director of Consumer Affairs for AA Ireland. We are here to talk about the cost of driving. Yes, and uh, listen, thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to me. I, I mean, I work for AA Ireland, which is a representative body for motorists with hundreds of thousands of members. And we also sell them insurance, so we do roadside breakdown. And we do a study every year on how much it costs to own and run a car. An enormous uh, burden on the cost of living, particularly in rural Ireland. Uh, people just have to have a car. Two-car households these days, which isn't great for the environment and isn't great for the family budget, but people are doing it because they have no choice. So we would regularly talk to people about the cost of motor insurance, which is a huge problem for everybody at the moment, as well as the cost of fuel. You know, the cost of fuel goes up and down in response to world oil prices. When it goes up, we pay more. And if you're using, if you're a high mileage driver, that makes a big difference to the family budget. And then across all of that, we know that motoring, generally speaking, is very, very carbon intensive and therefore not great for the planet. So we're in a stage now where we're trying to transition across to electric vehicles, which will be the future. Um, and, you know, again, I expect that for ordinary families using cars, it'll still be a major expense. And uh, do you think the cost of driving is very expensive t- towards like young people? It's almost prohibitive. I mean, if you're a young person and you want to get out on the road, it may not matter so much for young people living in urban areas where you can access school and college. And, you know, you, if you live in the middle of Dublin, you might have no need to drive a car even into your 30s and beyond. On the other hand, if you live in a farm in rural Ireland, Uh, and you want to go to college, you almost have to drive a car. And the cost, not only is it very expensive, it's front-loaded. So your insurance is at its most expensive when you're a young, inexperienced driver. And usually, that's when you've got the smallest amount of money available to you. So for lots and lots of people, it's almost impossible uh, barrier to get over, to put enough money in one spot to actually be able to get yourself up and running in a car. But as I say, if you're in rural Ireland, you really have to do it. And people are put to the pin of their collar to pay for it. Families are put to the pin of their collar to pay for it. Uh, and, and you know, that unfortunately is the situation. Yeah. And uh, do you think it's more difficult to get uh, young people on the road than it was in the past? It's always been a problem. Um, so, I mean, if you're a young person now, I'd imagine you'd, you'd be inclined to say, yeah, this is impossible. The deck is really stacked against me. In a sense, it's always been true. And one of the main reasons why it's true is that, you know, it's not discrimination. Young people are much more likely to crash the car and make an insurance claim than anybody else. Uh, you know, if you're a bookie, you don't offer the same odds on the dubs to win the All-Ireland that you're going to give on Leitrim. And if you're an insurance company, you, you are going to charge the most money to, to the group that's most expensive. Now, actually, in the past, uh, um, it, it used to be much worse again for young males uh, because young males are by far the riskiest group on the road, sorry to say, and they were by much the most expensive insurance. But the rules changed a few years ago. Insurance companies now can't look at your gender. Um, So that was a bit harsh on the young females and a a bit of a break for the young males. Uh, They're both now charged the same price. But they're both young and therefore inexperienced drivers and therefore expensive to insure. So, yeah, I won't say it's, it's, it's worse than ever. I'd say it's always been bad for young people and it still is. Yeah. Is there uh, anything that can be improved on the cost? Well, um, 
there are probably a few different things. I mean, one of the things that Ireland has got a lot better at is the process of training and teaching people how to drive. So doing your theory test and getting your lessons and getting out on the road, that's better than it used to be. And actually, the total number of people being killed and injured on Irish roads is way down as well. So you would think that should mean that the cost of insurance should come down. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't. And there, there are deep reasons for that. They're to do with dysfunction in the insurance system. The fact that we you know, have such generous compensation whenever anybody gets a bit of whiplash and all of that has to be paid for. So the cost of motoring, I think, would be coming down um, for citizens generally if we could crack that issue with insurance prices. But at the moment, and listen, you can read, there's been loads about this in the last five years and much hot air and much promise of reform. Um, but really, it, it hasn't helped much yet. Uh, we, we need to do something about the cost of insurance. That's the big, big problem in the landscape. And uh, do you think it should be taught in school? Yeah, I do. And look, in the past, I was involved on, on uh, you know, I, I was a, I gave advice to the Road Safety Authority and I was on the board of the National Safety Council that was there before the Road Safety Authority. And you know, we did want to have a transition year module on road safety and, and driving. Now, they do driver's ed in the US, which is the same sort of thing. And we would want to have that in transition year in Irish schools. I think it's a great opportunity. Not every school does transition year. And you also have to be conscious that across the country there are plenty of families where you know this is ridiculous. There's no way they can afford driving for their kids, and you know you don't want people to feel excluded. But I think it's a good opportunity, certainly, to to teach young people about road safety. I think ro- young people these days want to be very responsible citizens. They're very informed compared to the generation before them. They care hugely about things like climate and the environment. Uh, and I think they would also care hugely about things like road safety. I, I think they're a pretty responsible generation. And I think it's a good opportunity and uh, we should be doing more with it. It's probably an opportunity made. And that was Connor Faulkner from AA Ireland. Thanks very much for that. And thanks very much to Adam and Patrick for coming in today to talk about this issue. Coming up next, we have... Uh, Cass talking about the HSE and mental health services. Welcome back. I'm now joined with Cass who will be talking to us about her experience with mental health and the HSE. So, Cass, why do you want to talk about this? Um, I thought that this was a very big issue um, to be brought up because I've struggled with mental health issues since around about fifth class um, and something that's just not brought up enough. If you don't mind, would you be able to tell us about your experience? Um, yeah, of course. I first started having mental health problems in fifth class. Um, I just wasn't in a very good place and in sixth class my parents had noticed that I was self-harming and they contacted a local mental health service um, and we waited I think it was a few weeks for an assessment and they initially dismissed me and told me that I was fine and it was the rejection was really hurtful because, you know, I was in a really, really bad place. And to be told by professionals that I didn't need their help, it just, it 
sort of set off everything getting a little bit worse. Um, How is your personal life at the moment, like your social with your friends and that? Um, in sixth class, I was still functioning fairly well. Um, my grades were very high. I had actually won um, an award, a medal for English. Um, but once I got into first year, um, things went downhill very quickly. Um, I had a lot of problems with my friends. Um, I lost a lot of them. Um, I had started failing subjects that I'd, you know, previously been getting A's in. Um, I it was just so hard to focus on anything. Um, uh, then my parents noticed again that I was getting worse. Um, and they actually contacted Pieta House. And Pieta House were brilliant. Um, I had, well, I was supposed to have 10 sessions with them. Um, but they said that I needed ongoing support. Um, they had suspected that there was underlying mental health problems, um, but they didn't have the resources to diagnose me. Um, they referred us to um, the local service that we'd already tried. Um, so we had to go to the GP um, and then we waited two months for an assessment, for another assessment in the service. Um, so Pieta gave me support while we were waiting. Um, so I ended up with, I think, 16 sessions. Um, were you feeling any better after them sessions? Not really. Um, it was a brilliant service, don't get me wrong. Um, it was lovely to have somewhere to speak about things. Um, it's just, I got brilliant support, just not the level of help that I needed, which is why they referred me to somewhere they thought that I could get it. Um, so yeah, the wait took two months um, and it was... When we got the service, we thought that, you know, it's a HSE service, it's, it's government funding. Um, you know, that should mean that it's good and that it's going to work. Um, but very quickly, we noticed a lot of issues with it. Um, there was very, very inflexible, like, time periods for appointments. Um, they would... Um, they would give me appointments um, like once every week for a while and then leave me for however long. Like I think one time I waited three months just for an appointment. Um, How were you feeling at this point? I think that this was probably, this was the start of me like getting to my lowest point. Um, I was dealing with undiagnosed autism, undiagnosed um, dissociative episodes, um, which is where I went through periods that could be an hour, that could be a week of just not feeling like anything was real. Um, I had told my therapist there at the service, I had told them about everything. Um, they didn't... They never told me what was going on. Um, 
they would just tell me that it was normal or, you know, well, how does that make you feel? Which, it wasn't what I needed. That's what I had gotten in Pieta. How did it make you feel? It made me... It felt as though they were minimizing all of my issues. Um, one of the big things is what I would say something... Um, this was with my therapist and sometimes my doctor. Um, it's, oh, you know, you're very young and you're just a teenager. It's just what happens. But that that wasn't what it was, what it was at all. How did things progress? Um, they they went downhill fairly quickly. Um, I had um, I developed very bad coping mechanisms. Um, I was drinking a lot, um, and you know, using cannabis a fair amount, um, and it actually they both developed into dependencies. And because I had, you know, autism and was very vulnerable, um, that made my disassociation ten times worse. Um, it then turned into derealization, and it's been like that for about two years, um, which is a constant feeling of not being real. Um, did you attend any services for the addiction? I did. Um, I went to uh, Yoda uh, Youth Drug and Alcohol Services in Tala. Um, thankfully, I was discharged. Um, doing so much better now. I have it all under control. Did things get better or worse after you attended Yoda? Um, in terms of the addiction, um, got a lot better. Um, but in general, my mental health was not very good. Um, I, a while before that, I had been referred to an inpatient service, um, which, uh, sorry, um, I had to wait, I think, two weeks for an assessment because the service I was attending um, had said that I was having a psychotic break. Um, they dismissed me after the assessment and told me that they didn't have anywhere to put me because I've, I've noticed a lot that in inpatient facilities and psych wards, um, most of them are just loads of people with completely different issues thrown into one area. Um, and because I was very vulnerable, um, they just decided not to let me go, um, which I I found very difficult. So you sent, they sent you home? They did. Um, they didn't re like give me any other referrals, any other inpatient wards. They just sent me back to the original service. How were your parents dealing with all this? Um, we've never properly spoke about how they feel, um, but I'm fairly sure it was scary because they're putting all of this effort and time and money into these services, you know, hoping that it's going to help. And to have so many of your attempts fail, I just, I can't imagine how, like, difficult it is.
So how are you feeling now? Now, um, thankfully, I'm in with the village counselling service, which is in Tala, um, and that's a donation-based service. I was on the waiting list for two years, um, but now that I'm finally there, um, I'm honestly feeling the best that I have been in maybe my entire life. Um, it's finally I have somewhere that's dealing with the issues properly. Um, and it's just, yeah, I'm doing a lot better than I have been. It's great to hear that you're doing so well now. Thank you. Why did you feel like it needed to be talked about today? Um, I wanted to speak about it to highlight the difficulties um, and hopefully try and educate and change people, people's views on the system. Um, during the week here, um, I've actually gotten to follow around News Talk's political correspondent, Sean Defoe, um, to election markings. Um, I asked Aon O'Riordan his opinion on HSE Mental Health Services. I'm a TY student working with News Talk for the Week, and we want to highlight the difficulties associated with accessing mental health facilities that are run by the HSE. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on the situation, or are you informed on the situation? I, I do a huge amount of work in the area of addiction, and there's a huge uh, connection between mental health problems and, uh, and addiction issues, and I think that that issue is not often understood. What's happening is that many people with mental health struggles will, will turn to addiction, will turn to, to substance use or misuse, uh, and uh, the government response or the state response at the moment, unfortunately, is to criminalise that person, to say that you're taking something that's illegal and you need a criminal sanction, okay? What we need to change is the whole conversation around addiction and mental health. The mental health is something that we can that we can help, that we can give counselling for, that we can understand better. But what we're doing now is that if you have a mental health difficulty, uh, you know, uh, at the same time, you are, are told that you have to get your addiction sorted out first before you can get counselling, okay, for your mental health uh, issue or your depression or your anxiety. And that's something that we have to, re- that's, you know, the whole dual diagnosis thing has to be addressed. Um, I also asked Richard Boy Barrett his thoughts on the services. There was a brilliant plan drawn up over a decade ago, which is Vision for Change, and it is absolutely takes every box of what's necessary to provide the state-of-the-art mental health services, resources and staffing that we need so that every sector of our society who suffers mental health difficulties or crises uh, will have the supports they need, but has never been implemented. But we have consistently, including on our latest budget submission, budgeted to put in the in excess of €300 million that would be necessary to bring it up to scratch. Uh, Our CAMS teams are staffed at about 50% of the levels, for example, required under Vision for Change. That's why the services aren't there. And in fact, it's even worse in many cases that people in the mental health services are leaving them. Psychiatrists are resigning. People won't go into the sector because it's so badly resourced. The conditions for those working in it are so terrible. And it means that people in emergency situations, often with suicidal ideation, literally have nowhere to go in many cases. Um, then I asked Tanish to Simon Coveney why the public should trust that they'll improve their mental health services. Um, the, um, in terms of um, uh, healthcare provision uh, and many staff being overworked, uh, um, you know, I've, I have family that work in the health system in Ireland. Um, there are many things that aren't as they should be. Uh, there are some other areas of healthcare that have improved significantly uh, uh, in recent years. 
but effectively this requires uh, the implementation of what all parties agree now is the direction for healthcare in the future, which is Slauncher Care. Uh, that is going to involve spending about an extra billion euros a year uh, in terms of current expenditure uh, on healthcare provision. More staff, more beds, better systems, um, and better response capacity uh, to, to a growing population that are becoming more and more demanding uh, in terms of healthcare provision. Um, personally, I was disappointed with Simon Coveney's answer. Um, his answer was very broad and didn't actually touch on mental health. Um, Aon O'Riordan's answer, um, I was glad that he brought up addiction because it's a big issue. Um, but it was a shame that that was all he's like, that was all he touched on. Thanks so much for joining us today. And if anyone has been affected or knows of family and friends who have been affected by any of the issues raised, please contact PA House on one eight hundred two four seven two four seven or Good Samaritans on one one six one two three. After the break, we'll be talking about reducing the voting age and who should pay on the day. Welcome back. I'm now joined by Jasmine and Sarah who will be talking about their opinions on lowering the voting age to 16. Why do you feel this is an important topic to talk about? Well, I feel this is an important topic to talk about because like in this modern age, we talk about children being represented and becoming leaders of their own countries, becoming the writers of their own stories, yet we have no influence over who rule our country, who decide um, who makes this planet livable. When we inherit this earth, it's up to politicians and we should have the say who they are. So I think that this is an important topic to talk about. The two of you have strong opposing views. Jasmine, what do you think about lowering the voting age? Well, I just think that it doesn't really make that much sense to lower it, considering, I mean, we have a lack of updated information and we wouldn't necessarily have the time. And also, um, how we make decisions wouldn't be as advanced as how adults would make decisions. I just think we're not prepared and we're not ready to, you know, be making such important decisions as who's in government and who's making laws and who's making rules, etc. So, Sir, what do you have to say about that? Um, well, I disagree with that we're not educated enough, that we don't know enough. With, you know, the internet readily available, social media, I think that children are able to educate themselves on political parties, different issues and matters. With subjects such as CSPE, politics and society, um, like we get a good basis in school as to what is expected in political life and how we should vote. Um, I think that if you take a look at it, like children at 16, they can leave school, they can get married, they can be employed and pay uh, rent and taxes full time. Like they can join the army, they can drive mopeds and gliders. So why shouldn't they be able to vote? Well, I would just say, I mean, you raise topics such as they can marry and they can leave school early, but these things aren't advised. And the, the like they shouldn't, in my opinion, be happening. And the thing is, I think these are very specific situations that you're talking about. Not like the majority of 16 year olds would not be leaving school. The majority would not be getting married. And I understand. I mean, personally, in my opinion, I think that the ages for those things should be hired. And they're, yeah, once again, they're for very specific situations. And similarly, I agree with you. I think like there would be a few teenagers who are very mature and they, you know, they can go and they can research these things and then they can go more into depth in them and they should have the right to vote. However, I think majority, um, no. 
I disagree. The girls took to the street to ask the public for their thoughts on the matter. So what's your opinion on voting age and do you think it should be um, changed to 16? Yeah, I think it should because um, children are a lot more educated now and they know a lot more and they talk a lot more in school about things. Yeah, it should be changed. No, 18 is just right for voting, to be honest. Yeah, 16 year old wouldn't be interested in politics, be only interested in enjoying herself. And anyway, some of the kids nowadays don't even bother because everyone they vote in does the same. Promises, promises, and they never keep them. Yes, I do. I think you have a great opinion. You know what's happening, what's up and coming, and you have a great voice, and you should be allowed to use it. Well, personally, I, or I disagree as well. I don't think it should be changed because one of the main reasons, probably when we're 16, we have enough things going on and we have enough to think about ourselves. And as well, the things that I would have thought when I was 16 are completely different to what I think now as I'm 18. So, no, I don't think we should change age to 16. Yeah, I think so. Because uh, I think that young people or younger people should have more of a say in the future. Definitely. Oh, I feel like 16 is a more responsible age. Um, I think so, sure. Why not, you know? Encourage everyone to vote. No, I think it's too young. Just, you don't understand, like, it's too young to understand what's going on. Do you know what I mean about voting? So I think it should be 18 or 21 even. That's my personal opinion. No, personally, I think 18 is the right age. Uh, it gives people a chance to actually learn about what voting means. It's a very important thing, so you need to give it a lot of thought. I think 18 is spot on. So you can hear, um, the public kind of seem to have a split decision on the issue. Uh, half think that it would be good for children to be able to vote and others think that 16-year-olds are too immature and wouldn't be able to. Um, I feel that if you look at different statistics, countries like Scotland, Austria, uh, Malta, Argentina, Brazil and Ecuador, like they can all vote at 16. And they've released statistics this year saying that there is a higher turnout percentage of 16 to 17 year olds. Yeah, OK, I would like I agree that it, obviously it's beneficial to have more votes. However, I think, you know, how many of those votes would have been soiled? How many of those votes would have been made purely out of, you know, a politician giving something that's maybe not beneficial or it's only beneficial to young people and not the general public? And I just think, like, if you look at Ireland statistics, like, um, despite uh, young people being only 8% of the population, uh, there are 35% of reported sex offenders, 35% of uh, robberies like they commit, and uh, 29% of burglaries. And ultimately, I think they're just very... They're, we have a lot of problems um, in this country among the youth that need to be solved first. Like, another example would be mental health is, like, very, very quickly deteriorating. And, of course, this is something that should be tackled and should be, you know, taken very, very seriously. However, I think we need that to happen before we can start letting young people make these big decisions. But if you feel that mental health is such a big issue, you could argue that mental health may never be brought up in ways that it needs to be without children pushing it forward. When you look at issues such as climate change, the large-scale school strikes that we are taking charge of, we are ahead of the curve. We know what needs to be done and what has to be done. So things like mental health, things like criminal activity, they can be dealt with, but children who you say are affected the most by it if they can push it forward if they have the right to argue their own points and vote for who they feel will come into power and change the way this country is run i would agree however um there is a study released and it basically just says that uh the difference is adults think with the prefrontal cortex in their brain and um 
and teenagers will think with the amiglada, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but basically the difference is that um, adults would make decisions that work better in longer term. So in some situations, I agree, climate change is very, very serious. I think it's very important that we talk about it and mental health, et cetera. But I think the best thing that teens can do now to tackle those problems is, again, the marches and not necessarily voting who should be in the government. However, telling, like informing adults and informing the HSE but not choosing the politicians. Whereas sometimes children's voices maybe aren't heard, maybe um, adults thinking however they do. I think maybe they leave out and they don't recognise the fact that children have their voices, that they need to be heard. Back in 2013, uh, the issue was raised by the Convention on the Constitution, um, made up of 66 civilians and 33 parliamentaries. And they voted in favour of changing it to 16. Enda Kenny promised a referendum, yet it was pushed off the political agenda um, for pressing concerns such as marriage equality, the Eighth Amendment. So I think that they should bring back a referendum. I think they should let people have their say. I think it should be changed to 16. However, uh, to counteract that, I would say there was a study brought out in the journal and they had almost 15,000 votes um, and basically 70.9% said no. So I think, yes, they should maybe have another referendum, but I'm just saying would it be worth it? Because if you look at teenage activity, do teenagers pay taxes? How many teenagers are actually working? They can't even earn, you know, a a full minimum wage. You know, I think teenagers are very, very capable of a lot of things, of very important things. However, voting should not be one of them. When you say that, you know, they're not paying taxes, you know, they, they don't have, they don't have to worry about families. They don't have to worry about jobs. They don't have to worry about, you know, tax and stuff. But... Maybe that's what this country needs. Maybe this country needs to have a fresher view on it. Maybe this country needs to think outside of only the issues concerning people from 18 upwards. I think that um, it should be raised more for the young people to turn around and say, well, that, that makes no difference in my future. I think that their futures are so important and they need says in how they're run. I agree. However, I also think it's up to... A child's parents to mind them I mean there are laws in this country which tell parents that this is what they're here for is to look after their children not necessarily to put in votes to look after the children or to make politicians make these rules I think it's a parent's job to look after their children and to make wise decisions and I just don't think that having teenagers make the vote which you know could ultimately lead to a lot of serious problems in this country if not taken seriously by teenagers I just don't think it makes sense I think that's just the reality of it well, as we couldn't agree, um, Jasmine and I went out and we got the um, views of the communications and PR consultant of Car Communications, Johnny Fallon. So our first question for him was his opinion on the voting age in Ireland and whether he thinks that it should be changed to 16. I do feel we should change it to 16. I think um, a lot of students become very politically aware um, during their teens. Um, there has always been a traditional sense that maybe we shouldn't have, that 18 is the age when people finish school and then start a job. But of course, in the modern age, people often go to college. And and sometimes there's this excuse that people aren't paying taxes, but that's no reason to uh, deny somebody a vote. I think it would greatly encourage young people to vote. And, And over the years, I've run a lot of programs in second level schools, and the amount of interest and the depth of which they 
look at issues it is extremely important and many of the long-term issues are affecting them more than anything so i think it would be an appropriate age for them to start getting involved in the process um i then asked johnny would there be any changes that would occur within the doll if the voting age were to be lowered i'm not sure that you would see many dramatic changes because most young people take really good stock of the situation most of them do look at the alternatives, they they look at various different political parties and they make decisions that are are quite well informed. What you would see is perhaps a priority placed on some of those longer term issues, things like the environment or like policies that are, are, you know, 10, 15, 20 years away, public transport issues, things like that, that other uh, generations struggle to start seeing outside of their own agenda. And once you go to college, sometimes you're very focused on those students' day-to-day issues that are going to affect you. One of the only groups that actually has the time and space to actually think about what's Ireland going to be like 20, 30 years from now is that time when you're at school. And I think you would see a greater importance on placed on those topics as opposed to dramatic dull reforms or sudden changes in the numbers in, in the dull. That's something to think about coming up to the election time. Thanks very much to Jasmine and Sarah for coming in and talking about this topic. Next up, I have Chloe and Patrick who will be talking about who should pay on the day. Finally, I'm joined by Chloe and Patrick who will be talking about a subject that kept coming up in our office all week about who should pay on the day. Patrick and Chloe have two opposing views on the matter. So, Chloe, what's your opinion on this? Um. Well, my opinion would be that you should split it 50-50 because I don't think it would be fair to leave somebody paying for me personally and I've always split the bill with everybody I've went out with and um, I just wouldn't think it would be fair to let somebody pay for me and especially since people like to think that you should pay all the time I don't think I would be able to do that I feel like I owe the person and Patrick, what are your views? Well, I think that the man should always try at least to pay for the date because it's a nice gesture and it shows to the girl that he's decent towards her and it would be better for him to do this than split a 50-50 and give off a bad impression. So, Chloe, you said you'd insist on paying 50-50 every time you went out. What would you do if the man was eager to pay for the whole thing? I wouldn't argue, but well, I I might argue for a few minutes, but I wouldn't spend the whole time arguing because I feel like it would ruin the mood. But if I felt like the date wasn't going well and if it was starting to go downhill, I would definitely split it. I wouldn't be letting them pay. And Patrick, you say that you want to pay all the time, but what would you do if a woman insisted that she paid her half? I, I would try to persist, but if she insisted like constantly I would eventually let her so so we couldn't agree on our topic so we went out and asked people who they thought should pay on the day the more dominant one so like is this between girls and boys or just in general well it's always a good idea to offer to split it but realistically no one wants to do that so girls should offer but lad usually does but a girl should always offer to pay as well and what do you think I'd probably just pay for myself he should, definitely. 
Why do you think that? Because it's always been that way. Life is good, stick with it. It doesn't matter the gender nowadays that we live in a modern society when usually it's the male, but it you decide. It doesn't matter anymore. Um, I think that it should be 50-50 because if women want equality, then they should have to pay their own way. Uh, whoever asked the person, yeah. <laughs> Generally things spread out. Yeah. Unless the guy really insists, but like... Equality! Yeah. <laughs> Depends on how the date goes. I think you should definitely offer. If it didn't go great, I'd say split it. It does depend. And politeness, you should offer, I think, yeah, to go halfsies. But I don't think I'd actually pay for the full meal myself now that I think about it. So thanks, Chloe and Patrick, for coming in today and talking to us. Also, thanks to everyone that has came in and to everyone listening. A big thank you to News Talk and Learning Waves for providing us with this opportunity all week. This Transition Year Media Week programme is funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee and has been devised by Learning Waves.